0: good morning again. Uh, I want to jump back to the book of Revelation. We've been studying for the last uh, 37, 38 years or something like that in the book, the book of Revelation, and we find ourselves in the last book of the Bible, chapter 18. And I want to pick up in verse 9 and read all the way through verse 20. This is our, uh, what is the third or fourth study on Revelation chapter 18, Revelation chapter 18 and verse 9, and the kings of the earth, Revelation eighteen nine. now the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her, speaking of this false religious system, not a person, it's not, we're not talking about a person here this morning, it's a false religious system, the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear for torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her, since no one buys their cargo anymore. cargoes of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots and slaves, that is, human souls. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendor are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear for torment, weeping and mourning aloud, alas, alas. See, it proves it's a girl. Alas. No, I'm just joking. Uh, alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels, and with, with pearls. For in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. And all shipmasters and seafarer men, sailors, and all who trade in the sea, stood afar off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads, as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth, for in a single hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Lord, I pray that as we read this passage, there be no confusion again very often that uh, the enemy of our souls comes in and plays upon our fears and insecurities and causes us to hear passages like this and immediately go into self-condemnation. And of course, because we are hopefully wise, we know that condemnation always drives us away from your purposes for us. So often you put grace right in front of us and we run away because of fear. I pray there would be no such fear here this morning. And yet conviction does happen where it makes us perhaps become aware that we're living wrong, but it always has the effect of bringing us close to you. So, Lord, I pray that there would be no condemnation here and that should there be of necessity conviction, that it would only be from you and that it would only bring healing and for the purpose of healing for the people. I pray, God, that you give clarity to my words. I'm a mere man. You would take all the glory so that this place could remain safe that no man is the purpose or objective of this church, and that all glory and honor would only go to you forever and ever. So God, guard our hearts here this morning. I pray that you bind any voices in our heads or otherwise that would cause us to be confused or worried or panicked, but that you would bring perfect clarity and peace here this morning. And I don't know the issues in the hearts of these people, but you do. And I don't need to know them. But God, I ask that you would meet them in the time of their need, even on a jumping into the middle of a passage like this that maybe, maybe is rather strange. You would meet them in the midst of this. So heal our hearts and forgive our sins. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, while it's true that the Babylon the Great is one system, as we've talked about in previous studies. This system has been manifested in two separate expressions in both Revelation 17 and Revelation in chapter 18. And as we delve into the religious roots that are described for us in chapter 17, the symbolism, as we saw, unfolds when it calls her mystery Babylon the Great and the mother of all harlots and abominations of the earth. That is, So we found she is the originator. She's the mother of this system. Harlotry, biblically, is false religion. She is the originator of all false religions that have ever existed upon planet Earth. So that there was a starting point for it all. And as we found in the previous studies, false religion is that which claims to lead somebody in worship of the true and the living God, but it doesn't. But rather, she encourages the lifestyle of rebellion even unconsciously, unconsciously, in, under the guise of that God has given me permission to do this. And God will never give you permission to harm yourself. He'll never do that. And she's known, number one, for her indulgences, as we saw. As it says in verse 7, she glorified herself and lived in luxury. And number two, she's known for the persecution of the saints. As it says in verse 24, in her was found the blood of the prophets and the saints and all who have been slain on the earth. And her influence, therefore, then, has been worldwide in a hurry, in its reach. It's been worldwide. And so while Revelation 17 delves into the religious roots of Babylon the Great, her impact clearly is far-reaching. As Revelation 17 verse 15 vividly illustrates, the waters where the prostitute is seated represents peoples, multitudes, nations, languages, Uh, and tongues, and thus indicating, as I've suggested, she has a global reach. And this global influence prompts us, I think, to reflect on the words of Christ. Where in Matthew's gospel, in chapter 6 and verse 24, in this kind of pivotal perspective on worship that Jesus offers, he states the phrase that no man can serve God and money. He'll either love the one and hate the other, but no man can serve both. And yet we try. But Jesus said it's actually literally impossible. You cannot serve God in money. And the statement from Jesus holds profound significance as it challenges the idea of being under the influence of a conflicting systems and ideologies at the same time. And so as we unravel the layers here of Babylon's impact, I think we begin to see how its manifestations extend not just globally, but actually into various aspects of our own lives. It's posing a challenge. To us, I think, individuals in our pursuits of God. And when Jesus said no one can serve two mansers, he basically, by saying that, he has divided all mankind into two camps. And the worship of the true, the living God, and the worship of mammon. In other words, all other false religions can be relegated to mammon, according to Jesus. All other religions, you're either serving God, the true and the living God, or mammon. And all religions can be broke down into this. And thus emphasizing that all false religions or misguided forms of worship can be grouped under the same umbrella. And, you know, we have the idea that sometimes there's so many beliefs out there. Who, sh- who should we really believe? I mean, I went through that. There's nothing wrong with those questions. I love people's questions. I love people's challenges. I never want you to blindly believe anything. God forbid, for my sake. Just believe, because I told you so. <laughs> you idiot. <laughs> you don't, don't do that. But people ask these questions. I've asked those questions. But according to Jesus, all those other beliefs are essentially the same. They are essentially, so he says, so says Christ, the worship of mammon, whatever that is. And so how can I tell the difference between the worship of the false and the worship of the true? Well, this is one way. One way to tell the difference, when someone is serving God as revealed in Christ— that God gives you freedom. Anybody enjoy being bound, constrained, limited? You feel like you're constricted that your life was supposed to be this way, and it's not that way, but it's the other way? (laughs) This is all of us. And it was Jesus who said, you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And what's the thing that causes us to run? Truth. It's the very thing that will bring healing into your soul, and yet we hear it, and it freaks us out, so we run. But Jesus said, no. In biblical terminology, truth is another name for God. It's not just a concept. And God comes to set us free. But as opposed to serving a God who frees you, what we'll find is that when we begin to serve mammon, whatever that is, it enslaves you. You serve the turn of the living God, you have freedom. You serve mammon, you have bondage. Anybody bondage, in bondage this morning? <laughs> and you're a slave to your passion. You're a slave to the dominion of something else. The word mammon is derived in the Aramaic word that means wealth or property. <laughs> and it symbolizes the, the temptations and the distractions posed by materialism and the desire keyword, the desire for financial benefit. benefit. In 1 Timothy in chapter 6 and verse 10, the apostle Paul writes, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And again, money isn't the root of evil, but the love of money is. It's the pursuit of it. And then he goes on to say, it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. Translation, the love of money leads to pain. And in the context of Revelation 18, the symbolic woman, it's not a literal woman, she represents a system that mirrors the contradiction of claiming to be able to serve both God and money. And we talked about that previously. But Jesus here in his clear teaching emphasizes the inherent conflict that comes about in trying to serve both, leading to the conclusion that the system represented by the woman is in reality serving mammon. The embodiment of the pursuit of wealth and material gain. And ipso facto, leading men into a lifestyle of bondage and sin. The proof is in the pudding. The proof is in the pudding. Now, why do people serve mammon? I don't think this is a stretch for us. Put it another way. Something we can grasp. Even though mammon is bigger than money, we understand mammon through money. So I would ask the question, why do people want a lot of money? Anybody here ever want a lot of money? (laughs) Ever have those dreams of winning the lottery? They're very destructive dreams, but they're fun for the moment and then depressing later. (laughs) You see, people want money because it's perceived freedom. With money, you have opportunities and choices that poverty can't provide. I can go to Fiji if I got money. Money opens doors. Money takes nice, expensive vacations. If you have money, you can get a massage on your vacation. And if you have money, you have friends. If you have money, people listen to you. And they generally want to take your advice because clearly you've got something figured out. Money brings respect. It brings comfort. It brings honor. Translation, money is power. Money is power. But money is also something else. You know what it is? (laughs) Pain. (laughs) It brings many temptations. And I don't know a few people, wealthy people actually, who've described it candidly as a burden that they sometimes have to carry. It's like Frodo carrying the ring in The Lord of the Rings, the ring of power. Not to be confused with that horrible Amazon presentation. (laughs) But Frodo's carrying this ring, and it wears heavily upon him. And truth be told, having money makes you constantly afraid that one day you might lose the money into the destruction, to borrow the analogy, of Mount Mordor. (laughs) And yet in spite of the persistent allure of material prosperity and the perceived ability to fulfill personal desires, individuals, I think, inadvertently find themselves becoming servants rather than masters when embarking on the path to pursue mammon. And yet here we find ourselves in this relentless pursuit because that's going to make me happy. Money transforms into a god, though, when we pursue it as such. And unwittingly, as it becomes my god, individuals then assume the role of a slave to that god. And they're ensnared by the very entity that they thought that they were beginning to control. I'm going to control this thing, but now it's controlling me. It controls me. And thus this paradox is really what it is. It aligns with the characteristics of false religious systems. That is false religion in its hub, where the pursuit of mammon leads to enslavement rather than any kind of real liberation. And this trajectory of condensed power, which is money, whether seen through the lens of money or other manifestations, it follows a similar course. When power is revered, it seeks expression even through, let's say, just innocent things like I don't know, boxing, <laughs> or managing a corporation, engaging in bodybuilding, can you tell? <sighs> it doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter. However, the inherent problem arises when the pursuit of power becomes an insatiable quest for more power. Is the bodybuilder that doesn't have to just get built anymore, he's got to use steroids. He's got to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And the bodybuilder's never big enough. The CEO never has enough conquest. He he has plenty of money, but now it's about the conquest of others. They're closely connected to each other. So the one that's pursuing money has to conquer more and more things, more and more people, if he's not tempered by the Spirit of God. And the boxer never knows to quit and when to quit. And so this unending pursuit of power inevitably leads to harm as it seeks to assert and expand its dominion forever. And that's really what Nebuchadnezzar was saying, I will be king forever. The whole statue will be a head of gold, if you know the pictures that are given to us in Daniel chapter 2 and chapter 3. My kingdom will never end, but it does end but it's that seducing spirit that says that you can conquer everything, you can have everything. The worship of mammon is the worship of power. And the challenge arises when the expression becomes increasingly vast. And unfortunately, it becomes more and more perverse given time. I don't want to come here and convict anybody or condemn anybody for sure. But the reality is is that all of us, on some level or another, have tasted of this, have been seduced by it. So if you're here this morning and he's talking about me, I'm really not. I'm really not. Because it applies to all mankind. (laughs) Because it lives inside of you. And I know that because it lives inside of me. It's only the question of, have I allowed this thing to rule me? Have I allowed it to become my master? Have I allowed it to have dominion? And the old... The old saying and how can I say that, that increasingly when we pursue these things that they become more perverse over time, how can I say that? Have you ever heard the saying, power corrupts, but absolute power corrupts absolutely? And the pursuit of money, the pursuit of power corrupts us. It's never enough, doesn't mean money is wrong, but there's a switch in our approach to it mentally, and it makes the man a slave who becomes more and more perverse just give it time, I think it was Rockefeller who, when he was asked, uh, the original guy that discovered all the oil, he said, how much money is enough? And you know what his response was? Just one dollar more. When is it ever enough? And in fact, that family, if we had time to study them, and I never want to, it is a study of this Babylonian system. The manipulation of banking, the manipulation of the medical field, the manipulation of our educational system, even globalization. It's all based in this endless lust and desire for money. If you study that man, John D. if you look at him, he was one of the most distorted, perverted men on this living earth. I was listening to an interview of the late Aaron Russo, who is a Rockefeller family friend. And he was talking with Nick Rockefeller. and. He said that Nick had asked him out of the blue, what do you think the women's liberation is all about? And Nick replied, it's about women having the right to work, getting equal pay to men, just like they won the right to vote. And Nick Aaron said that Nick then started to laugh, and he looked at him and he said, you're an idiot. And Aaron then said, why am I an idiot? And he said, let me tell you what that was about. We, the Rockefellers, Funded all of that. We funded Women's Lib. We got it all over the newspapers and televisions and the the Rockefeller Foundation. And then he said, You want to know why? And Nick said, There's two reasons that we did this. Number one, we we couldn't tax half of the population. Before Women's Lib, that made that we couldn't do this. And secondly, he said, Now we get the kids in the schools at an early age, we can then indoctrinate the kids how to think. It breaks up their family, and the kids start to look at the state as the family, at the school as the officials as their family, not as the parents teaching them. And so they were. The, those are the two primary reasons for women's lib, so he said. And then Aaron said to the interviewer, that which I thought up to that point was a noble thing. When I saw their intentions behind it, where where they were coming from, when they created it, when they thought of it, I saw the evil behind what I thought was a noble adventure. And in fact, Gloria Steinem admitted in her book that the CIA funded Miss Magazine, the CIA, which is, I thought you were only supposed to deal with foreign governments, John F. Kennedy. Hmm. But they funded Miss Magazine with the stated goal of taxing women and breaking up the family. Gloria Steinem. Well, they promised life, but it only ever delivers death. It makes you think that this is the path to freedom. It's going to liberate me. It's going to make me happy. And it's like, I, I love giving people hope, but not false hope is evil. And it's false hope. It destroys people. And it comes in the guise of helping people, and it ultimately harms. This is the Babylonian system. It says to you, you will be like God. Sound familiar? Genesis 3? But it makes you the slave of hell. And God never intended that for you. It gives you the promise of freedom and control, but it binds you in a lifestyle of bondage and pain. We talked about this last week, but if your freedom binds you, it's not freedom. If your freedom binds you, it's not freedom. And thus, the influence of this false system has engulfed a philosophy that extended into every aspect of life. Her influence is in the selling of the souls of men, as it says in verse 13. Look at verse 12. Cargoes of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented woods, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, sheep, horses, chariots, and slaves, that is, human souls. Well, when we confront the mention there of human souls at the culmination of this extensive list, we're prompted to question its role, I think. The question I have, is it a mere footnote, a concluding item in a lengthy inventory, or does it carry a more profound weight, encapsulating the very purpose behind the trading of all the previously enumerated commodities. In other words, was the trade of human souls a collaborative effort, just one among many other transactions, or is it a cumulative representation, that is, a summarization of the entire essence of the system? Well, as I turn my brain on, sometimes I do that. Considering that things and material goods are transient, subject to coming and going, while human souls are distinct in the list, human souls endure, my inclination is to interpret the listing of these souls as not just another entry into the inventory, but rather a culmination of the Babylonian system's ultimate objective. What are they after? Your soul. What do they trade in? All this other stuff. But this is what we're after. Your soul. The amazing thing is God is after your soul as well. (laughs) But he means you good. (laughs) He means you good. And the enemy of our soul only, he promises a beautiful apple, but man, he's going to hurt. It's like a lactose intolerant person drinking a jug of milk. I mean, it's going to (laughs) hurt, you know. But in essence, this leads me to, a, to, to surmise that the Babylonian system isn't merely interested in the trade of commodities. But instead, it harbors a more sinister ambition. What is it? It's the control and the enslavement of mankind. And thus, the mention of human souls serves as a poignant embodiment, I think, of this cumulative goal. It signifies that the enduring pursuit of to dominate individuals in the relentless quest for power and control. And thus, this system, when I look at it, it seems as after more than just transactions. It seeks the very subjugation of humanity using the trade of souls as its unmistakable emblematic expression. And think about the banking system today. Well, we have a fiat currency. I don't know if you know what that means. It means that they can literally print money out of nothing. And then they make you subjected to their control of it. You know, the Bible says, you know, you have to work for your food. You have to work for your keep. But the federal bank, on the other hand, doesn't have to do this. They literally can turn on a printing machine, and they're instantly millionaires. I mean, counterfeiting is illegal. And that's exactly what they're doing, in essence. The fiat currency doesn't actually exist. Did you know that? And when the Federal Reserve was created in 1913, the government could now borrow money that they didn't have. You see, before that, it was a problem. Before 1913 in the Federal Reserve Bank, which isn't governmental, it's a private bank. But before 1913, the government had to put out bonds to the people. The people got to vote by choosing to buy the bond or not to buy the bond. And if they chose not to buy the bond, the government didn't have money. But as soon as they set up the fiat currency, where the Federal Reserve was now uh, creating money out of nothing and holding you against it, they could just now print money, and in their printing of the money, it created inflation. Inflation is a form of taxation that they tax you without them having to now ask you for permission. You see, inflation is a hidden tax. It's a form of bondage. When they borrow money and go into debt, they just print more money. Which I think begs the question, if they can print more money, why do we pay taxes? But regardless, the more money they print, the less valuable the money is. And so now you have to pay more money for the same product. Before the hamburger cost $3, now you have to pay 7 Were you taxed? No, they can't tax you without that kind of representation and due process but because they borrowed money and then held you in bondage to the fiat currency, you, by now having to pay $7 for the hamburger instead of 3 actually, you were taxed $4 on every purchase you make. You just didn't know it. It's a form of, uh, of manipulation. Now, again, they borrowed the money. But when they borrowed the money, they devalued the dollar. And when your dollar was devalued, you pay more. So in the long run, Inflation is taxation without representation. And thus the Federal Reserve is illegal, I'll have you. It is literally illegal in the Constitution. And it's illegal for many reasons. And for the reason that the Constitution says that the government shall print their own money. Did you know that? The Federal Reserve is not a federal government. They named it Federal Reserve to give you the impression that it is the federal government. It is not the federal government. It's a private Western Central Bank. They call it the Federal Reserve to give you the impression so that you're thinking that the government, according to the Constitution, is printing their own money. And again, why do we pay taxes then? If they can just print more money, why do we pay taxes? And I'll tell you why. It's a form of controlling man in the name of of liberating man. Now, today, what we're going through right now is just borrow it, pay later. You can go to Walmart, apparently, and I haven't verified this, but I've heard it, that you can go to Walmart and you have an option now to pay later. What is that about? It's about control. It's about bondage. And it's a form of controlling man in the name of liberating man. As I said, look at all the stuff we can give you. Look at all the things we're going to do. We're going to build this. We're going to build that. We're going to give money to your, your county or your community. Look, we're going to do all of these things. And in fact, what they're pushing right now is the universal income. And at first, it sounds marvelous. You mean I get paid $3,000 a month to stay at home and do nothing. Yep. A husband and a wife can stay at home and earn $6,000 a month and do nothing. Yep. Where do I sign up? But it's a hook. It's a hook. They're trying to destroy you. They're trying to control you. And it promises freedom. This is the same system of Babylon the Great. It promises freedom, but its goal is to bring you into bondage. The principle applies across the board. It's the World Economic Forum with Klaus Schwab who promises you'll own nothing and you'll be happy. I am concerned when people tell me I'll be happy. (laughs) You will be happy? We ask the questions here, (laughs) as the joke goes. (laughs) You've heard that joke. But the problem is someone always owns something And it won't be you. By the way, this is what we call as communism. And in their case, they're looking for a dictatorial communistic regime where they rule the top. You say, well, in communism, everybody's equal. We are, but just some people are more equal than others. (laughs) It's communism that promises equality and freedom, but only, if you look at the history of communism, has only ever brought death Pain, disease, and destruction. It's the same spirit behind the central bank digital currency, which I'm not even going to get into that more on. But, but it's the whole idea that this will give you a digital currency. Now, all of a sudden, this digital currency, which they've openly said at the World Economic Forum, it will expire. And if you choose to use it on something they don't deem as being a carbon credit or something like this, then they will limit you. They'll take their money away. They'll docket you. And at the end of the day, the central government now can track every transaction that you need. We don't need the IRS anymore. Look at all the money we can save. Because it'll be an algorithm Well, they'll just automatically deduct how much money they get from you. No, you can't buy those plane tickets because... We determine that you can only use so many carbon credits, and that would not be appropriate for you. I think it's amazing. These guys that are flying to Davos in the last month here, in their one private jet that Bill Gates takes or someone like this to fly over there and to fly back, they use more energy than a human being would use in their entire life on gasoline in their car in one trip arrogance of these people, the arrogance. And it's Bill Gates who says that we need the world's population down to 800 million. When they say things like, we have a population problem, what are they saying? How do you solve a population problem? You get rid of the people. So that in the same conversation, he says, we need to introduce these vaccines to get the world population down to 800 million. They say, well, that was a mistake. Then Kamala Harris, camel face, says the same thing. It's like, give me a break. And many people have said the same thing. Uh, Jolly Prince Charles, who's now the king, doesn't look very royal to me. The guy is an absolute whack job. And he has for decades said that he ne- we need to... El- the-, the best thing he- the world needs is a killer virus. To eliminate the world population. These people are psychotic. They make Nazi Germany look like nothing. And that's why the speculation of Klaus Schwab, that his father, who was manufacturing things literally for Adolf Hitler, is of the same exact spirit. He certainly grew up in the same kind of mindset. And then you're surprised that these same power lords, they call themselves the elite ruling class, that many of them are slowly popping up on Epstein's list. Why? Because that's the same system. They want to control everybody in every venue, financially, materially. They want to control your thoughts. It's called the mainstream media. And on top of that, I want to control, I want to control people. How? Well, they're on Epstein's list. Hmm. Stephen Hawking. Hmm. Hmm. That guy was a freak. That guy was possessed by something. Controlling men, power, control, using men, satiating my lust, etc. It's all the same system. And this symbolic woman in Revelation 18, she's luxuriating herself as she has extended her influence to the every economic venue of the world. So, that while it may appear that there are two separate systems, religious Babylon chapter 17, economic Babylon 18, they're not separate. They're actually one and the same spirit that has philosophically influenced the earth. And the symbolic woman is also a city. In verse 10, alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city, Babylon. Now, how do we interpret that? It's clearly symbolic of a city because, as it says in verse 24, and in her was found the blood of the prophets and the saints. And of all who were slain on the earth. Now, is it possible for all the slain people on the earth in its history to be in one city, namely Babylon? No. So, this is clearly figurative. And therefore, this goes beyond pointing fingers at a specific city that's yet to be rebuilt, that got started by Saddam Hussein or something like that. No, she's responsible for shedding all the bloodshed on the earth. That is, when her principles are submitted to, death, not life, will ultimately reach man. That's, that's, that's where I, I want to challenge you, is what you're believing, is what we're believing, does it bring you life? Has it brought you life? This isn't a judgment and condemnation. It's like, I want to rub your nose in your sin. I don't want to do that. I don't want to expose people, and that's, that's of the enemy. But do you want to really honestly, objectively say, has this, the choices I've made, have they brought me life or have they brought me death? All of us have pain, all of us have hardships. But you know the difference between life and death. Think of the modern day sex trade or any of the various sectors of society and perversions where ethical compromises, exploitative business practices, or the prioritization of material gain over human dignity are represented. Yeah, put that horrible thing within the food because it saves us a lot of money and then it creates a medical problem, but we also own the pharmaceutical company that will help that medical problem. I'm taking crazy pills. There's a lawsuit coming out against all these hair product companies and they're finding that these hair product companies that are actually helping create balding, particularly in men, don't worry, I don't wash my hair, this is all natural. (laughs) And uh, this, this this balding that takes place, The same people that own, the shampoo companies own Rogaine. It's interesting. You could say, well, it was just accidental. It entirely could be accidental. But there's too many accidents to be chance. (laughs) And they prioritize financial gain. It's mammon over the welfare of people. It brings people into bondage, not liberation. They create a disease. Uh, you think about someone like something like, I don't know, a, a virus company, uh, computer viruses. They will write the viruses that create problems on your computer and then sell you the software that'll defeat the virus that they wrote for the computer. And maybe, I'm just, you know, just imagine, this is, there's no correlation to truth in this. Maybe a guy that has been so successful um, in a micro kind of a soft way, that he, he actually wrote so many viruses that destroyed computers and then sold the software to heal the viruses that destroy the computers. He was so successful, but he got bored with that, so he decided to go to actual viruses. And now he is in active pursuit in this imaginary situation that does not exist. There's not a single human being on earth doing this. So, um, I, hey, look, I swear... I absolutely swear, so that he devotes himself now to actual viruses and then devotes himself to the vaccines to fix those viruses that he actively sought by sending his people into the deepest, darkest caves in the earth, caves, to find these viruses that don't exist in any human experience so that he can bring destruction and be the savior of that destruction. That You'd have to be pretty psychotic to do that, and you'd also have to be on Epstein's list. And, you know, the problem is, is that we tend to kind of judge people based upon ourselves. That can be good and bad. We, you, if you're normal here this morning, you're saying, I would n- he's not doing that because I would never do that. That only speaks about your goodness. <laughs> to the pure, all things are pure. But trust you, me, people can become so uninhibited that they will do the most wicked things with a clear conscience. So rejoice when God slaps you on the head. <laughs> rejoice when it doesn't go your way because this isn't heaven. And so whether it's using lustful, lustfully using young girls for their pleasure and then discarding them, actually, that's what happens in our culture, right? They've told the, you young women, they're saying, hey, you know, give in to this and, and then the men use you. And then when you hit a certain age, they discard you. Feels good, doesn't it? It's a lie. It's a complete lie. And don't worry. There are good men that exist. Now, the Bible does say, a faithful man who can find. Hmm. (laughs) But the reality is they use people, whether it's the young girls or fighting for late-term abortion. I mean, that's psychotic. I heard this interview of a gal saying, Well, actually, the child's not viable even after it comes out of the womb. These people are crazy. These people are psychotic. And they use the late term abortion as a cover for the stem cell research or for the harvesting of organs, which is real, it's a real thing. It's the perverse system that trades in mankind. And so while the Frankensteinish late-term abortion doctor may do his business for his reasons, the occult, on the other hand, may do what they're doing for the exact same thing, but for completely different reasons. But at the end of the day, the child is still killed, and both are satisfied. And thus you have the Church of Satan, many of you have seen the article, some of you gave me the article, the Church of Satan suing for the reinstitution of abortion as they see it, as a religious right for child sacrifice. And they're right out there saying it. I think the case was filed in Alabama, wasn't it? If I recall, correct me if I'm wrong. They openly admit this. Different reasons, but the same spirit. Now in the occult, there's the intertwining of sex and power. As we said, money is condensed power. And so you often find the mighty and the rich becoming increasingly dominated by their lust for power. Just one dollar more. And nothing expresses this lust for power like the illicit, the forbidden, particularly in sexual relationships. Now, many people, maybe all of us, I don't know, have failed in this. I'm not trying to rub your nose in it you've come to the Lord and say, God, forgive me and cleanse me. And you're either going to trust in the blood of Jesus or you're not. You're either going to say, you know what, Lord, your blood either cleanses me of this or it doesn't. Your blood is either good for this or it's not good for anything. That is, we've confessed our sins. But this system basically says there's no need to confess your sins. And so while it makes you feel good that you've done nothing wrong because there's an inherent offense in the gospel, it means you have to admit you're not right. So it tells you you've done nothing wrong, and it makes you feel good, but you have to then enforce that feeling of good on other people. It's called gay rights or something like this. So that you think that by changing everybody else, you can make your inner conscience go quiet. (laughs) It's such a deceptive decision. And I'm not against homosexuals. They're being lied to. And I don't doubt that they truly feel what they feel. But you can't violate God's plan of things and bring yourself life. It brings death. And I'm all for life, I'm not against people, I'm for life. And on a religious level, this symbolic woman promotes every principle wherever she goes. On a religious level, she promotes the validation of the sinful nature. She encourages men to be at peace with their behaviors that ruin themselves and others. On a financial level, she feeds into the lust for power. As John says, it's the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And if I could sum up the occult in one statement, it would be this. It's the fusion of sex and power where money symbolizes concentrated power, leading to the affluent to pursue an escalating lust for power, primarily expressed through the forbidden, increasingly forbidden, sexual relationships. And as she teaches and practices these things in her various arenas, she becomes more and more debased. She indulges indulges in the forbidden and the naughty, I guess we could say. (laughs) And as all perversions go, they get more and more depaced. And thus this lust for power is like the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden. Once you eat of it, you only want one thing. You want it more. And thus God says, I've got to kick you out. I've got to close this off because there's a desire that's been awoken in you, Adam and Eve, that will never be satisfied And so God had to remove them. And so whether it's the religious prig who's looking for an opportunity to show his supposed greatness. I mean, you ever met these people? I've met people like this. They're so frustrated that other people don't recognize that they're one of the greatest minds that has ever existed. I'm one of the most godly men that has ever existed, and people don't see it. It's usually young men in their 20s. If you're in your 20s and you're a young man, God bless you. I'm not talking about you unless I am. (laughs) But they're looking for every opportunity to show their supposed greatness by seizing opportunities to assert, to, to assert excuse me, their perceived superiority by pouncing on those whom they perceive as weak and vulnerable because in their wisdom they found some inadequacy or sin within the man. Whether it's that or whether it's the actual authoritative positions who allow their judgments to be swayed by the influence of their own perversions— this is the same spirit that is everywhere. It's the same system. And thus, this symbolic woman has permeated and influenced individuals from various walks of life, compelling them to crave and express power in ways that perpetuate a cycle of degradation and moral decay. She validates it. And thus, when we look at chapter 18, it appears that there's a warrant for a spiritualized understanding of the text. Notice, number one, that her judgment is sudden. Revelation 18 and verse 8, it says, Therefore her plagues will come in a single day. Revelation 18 and verse 10, For in a single day your judgment has come. Revelation 18, 17, For in a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste. Verse 19, For in a single hour she has been laid waste. Number one, her judgment is sudden. Number two, her judgment will be with fire. Verse eight, it says, therefore, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. Verse nine, when they see the smoke of her burning. Verse 18 speaks when they say they saw the smoke of her burning. It'll be sudden. She'll be consumed by fire. And thirdly, her judgment will be complete. In verse 8, it says that she will be burned up with fire. In verse 21, she will be found no more. In fact, in verses 21 through 23, the phrase no more appears six times. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone, threw it into the sea, saying, so will Babylon the great be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians and flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of a craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of the bride and bridegroom will be heard in you no more. And it goes on and on and on. And so her judgment, number one, is going to be sudden. It's going to be with fire. It's going to be complete. And number four, it will cause men, once she is judged, to have to stand far away from her. They can't come close. In verse 10, it says, they will stand far off in fear of torment and say, alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city, Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. Now, let's think this through. What kind of judgment is sudden, with fire, Completely wipes the place out and doesn't allow anyone to come near after the judgment has come. Not a few scholars have noted that this judgment looks a lot like nuclear war. This sudden, complete burning fire that makes men not able to come close, this is very likely a nuclear bomb. And this concept of nuclear warfare is not foreign to ancient scriptures written long before the nuclear bomb was invented. In Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 12, listen to how it reads. And this shall be the plague which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. He's talking about the last days. Their flesh will rot while they are standing on their feet. Is is there any basis for this happening historically? He goes on to say, their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. Sounds a lot like the neutron bomb. And some have suggested that Isaiah 24 talks about this when it says in verse 19, the earth will be utterly broken. The earth will split apart. The earth is violently shaken. The earth staggers like a drunk man. It'll sway like a hut. Its transgressions lie heavy upon it, and it falls, and it will not rise again. And likewise, in Revelation 8 and throughout the Bible, really, it talks about this star coming down from heaven and creating catastrophe upon the earth. People have suggested it's like a nuclear bomb coming down. Listen to how it reads in verse 10. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers of the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had become made bitter. The fallout poisoned the water. Secular writer Jonathan Shell authored a book called The Fate of the Earth from 1970, and in it he describes what nuclear war would do. Listen to what he says. Bearing in mind that the possible consequences of the detonations of thousands of megatons of nuclear explosives include the extinction of many ocean species, among them some of the base of the food chain. Revelation 16, verse 3, it says, and every living creature in the sea died. He goes on to say the pollution of the whole ecosphere with oxides of nitrogen. Revelation 18, 12 again, a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, a third of the stars, so the third of them were darkened, a third of the day did not shine and likewise give its light. He goes on to say a significant decrease in photosynthesis in plants around the world, the scalding and killing of many crops. Revelation 8, 7, and a third of the trees were burned up, and the, plant, and the green grass was burned. He goes on to say, the increase of rates of cancer and mutations around the world. Many have speculated that the fallout from nuclear uh, holocaust, essentially, is that there's, it's not the people that die in the blast. It's the people that die after the blast through the different radiation. And he's saying it will cause cancers and all sorts of diseases in people. Revelation 16, 2, and a foul and loathsome sore came upon all men who had the mark of the beast. And then he said, the attendant risk of global epidemics. Remember the Isaiah passage in 24, the earth is broken? It's the idea that these bombs came down and they actually fractured, cracked, created the earthquakes. Luke's gospel, Jesus said in verse 11, chapter 21, and there will be great earthquakes in various places and famines and pestilences. This author then goes on to say the possible poisoning of all vertebrates by sharply increasing levels of vitamin D in their skin as a result of increased ultraviolet light. Revelation 16.8, the fourth angel poured out his angel on the sun, and power was given to him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with the great heat. And then he says, And the outright slaughter on all targeted continents of most human beings and other living things by the initial nuclear radiation, the fireballs, the thermal pulses, the blast waves, mass fires, and the fallout from the explosions. Revelation 9, verse 18, By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone. When it lines up. And he closes by saying, Considering that these consequences will all interact with one another in unguessable ways, and furthermore, are in all likelihood an incomplete list. One must conclude that a full-scale nuclear holocaust could lead to the extinction of mankind. Joe Biden. Can I just refer to him from now on as the guy? I'm just wondering if I can do that. Can I, do I have to say his name ever again? <laughs> He's declared that the world is the closest it has ever been to nuclear catastrophe in 60 years, so that it comes with no surprise that people are worried. Why in the world do we have worldwide peace, and then instantly we went back into the wars? Hmm. It almost makes you think it's deliberate. He said, the guy said... We have not faced the prospect of Armageddon since Kennedy and the Cuban Missile Crisis. And then he said, Putin is not joking, Vladimir Putin is not joking when he talks about potential use of tactical nuclear weapons or biological or chemical weapons because his military is, you might say, significantly underperforming, talking about Ukraine. And every indication is that the current regime, entrenched in Washington, D.C., is looking for opportunity to engage us in a large-scale war. You ever heard of the draft? Well, guess what? They're talking about drafting you girls as well. And in the past conflicts were always fought in foreign soils. Increasingly, the indications are that the conflict this time is going to be here. You know, the southern border is not an insignificant issue. It is not conspiracy theory to say that hundreds of thousands of military-aged Chinamen have entered the southern border. The documentation is extensive, hundreds of thousands, and they're in camps in the rural areas of Texas. They have this all on video. Why in the world are they coming here without their children and their wives? My father, one of his friends in Central California, was just telling him about a local news that reported one time on a fairly significant incident that should be making national news all the time, all day for the next three months. You know what happened? Their local news there in the San Joaquin Valley reported that one of those building inspectors was just walking by. She saw this weird cord coming out of a building. It seemed to be violating. She walks inside and finds that there was all these Chinese nationals making Ebola, coronavirus, and every other virus that has been banned, outlawed, is destructive. They were doing it illegally. They said that they went and called the CDC. The CDC hanged up on them. And it never even reported to the national media. The fact that Chinese nationals are in our country, that they just accidentally came across through a random on-the-spot building inspection. That should be worldwide news. You don't even know it happened. And I wouldn't even know it happened if my dad didn't have a friend that was in that exact same community. On top of this, I saw a video of a man that was the jihadist that are coming in through the southern border in Mass. And as much as I would probably argue religiously that Islam is a judgment upon compromised Christianity, which is a whole new subject in itself, the fact is, is that Islam is coming through our southern border, and this man was boasting to these Texas residents, he says, you don't know who I am, one day you'll know who I am, well it turns out he was a terrorist that was just released from jail, that he's been jailed for the last 12 years, and the first thing he does when he gets out is he comes to the United States, and he threatens the people there, you will one day know who I am, these people are serious, these people are serious, And when you realize that the current regime is encouraging this, it almost makes you think that somebody's in the pay pocket or blackmailed by communism, by China. Who knows? Lead author Lily Xia, if I'm saying her name correctly, X I A, an assistant research professor of the Department of Environmental Sciences at Rutgers, and co-author Alan Robock, R O B O C K a distinguished professor of climate sciences in the Department of Environmental Sciences, scientists at Rutgers University, they've built upon past research to determine what would happen if there was nuclear war. Long story short, the sun would be blocked out and there'd be global starvation over the next five years. And they based that just upon a theoretical conflict on a small-scale level between India and Pakistan. And they said just based upon the cloud and the dust that would go into the air, blocking out The sun's rays, so you can't grow anything. That small exchange will result, they said in their study, a decrease in 7% of the food production due to the dust cloud that would block the sun. And a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, a third of the waters, so that a third of them were darkened. A third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. And she, this Babylonian system who created the bombs, is now destroyed by the bond. And in verse 20, look how it reads, Rejoice over her, O heavens, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Why? Why? Because she has attacked, maligned, destroyed, ruined the servants of the true living God. She has to because she considers herself to be spiritual. This false religious system. Jesus, in Luke's gospel, in chapter 21, and verse 28, he said, When you see these things begin to take place, run around and panic, scream, jump off a cliff, suicide is an option, and start screaming that God is dead. Remember that verse? Remember that one? No? Nobody remembers that one? Yeah, neither do I. But Jesus said, when you see this happens, stand up, lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing nigh. Woo! Let's go! There you go. Amen, brother. (laughs) In other words, you're not scared for one reason. One reason. He's not scared. I give you permission. If God gets really scared, you can freak out. If God gets scared, you can jump off a cliff. But as long as that doesn't happen, and it never will, the only way you rescue yourself from, you see, most people are closing their ears, closing their eyes to all of this going on. I brought some stuff up today that makes some of you feel very uncomfortable. That's because you're an ostrich. you got your head in the sand. You're, I don't want to think about it. It's too stressful. I understand these personalities. I get it. But at some point in time, you need to confront it. That's not the answer, to pretend it's not happening, because it's going to happen. But the answer is to confront it, to look at it, and then choose not to put our head back in the sand, but to say, you know what, Lord? I'm going to choose to trust in you. It's a choice. It's a choice. Jesus also said in John 16, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. Here it is. I have overcome the world. There it is, the King of Kings. And the book of Revelation ended in chapter 18. If it did, I'd be terrified. But guess what? It doesn't end in chapter 18. You know what the next chapter is? Chapter 19. You know what happens in chapter 19? The Lord returns. And then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. He's going to put it all right, folks. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. And Christians can debate till Adam finished, is that literal or figurative? It's better to go with the literal until you see otherwise. The Bible says, he who has this hope in himself purifies himself just as he is pure. When you begin to look for that day, it begins to narrow our focus. It begins to hopefully build in us a compassion towards people on this earth, Christians and non-Christians, Christians Christians that are freaking out or maybe make-believers. There's believers and there's make-believers. If you're a make believer, own it. I mean, it's not a judgment. It's like, oh, well, you're bad. You know, that means nothing. We come into this reality and we confront truth because it liberates us. And we're disciplined and we lift our eyes up and we say, God, this is happening. And I'm not in the, my head's not in the sand. This is happening. But guess what? You are the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. You will come, you will return. And he who has this hope within himself, We look forward to the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So says Titus. As the Christian chooses to look up when everyone else is looking around, he finds a calm and a peace enters his soul. And navigation of the complexities of life is now much easier. It's very hard when you look at everybody else to navigate life, but you look into the audience of one, and then he directs your paths. Or you can try to direct your paths and navigate it based upon everything you can determine in your mind. There's too much. Or you can just simply bow the knee to the only wise God. And He doesn't hate you. If you got convicted this morning, it's not because He hates you. And I certainly don't know you. I don't know enough, I know some of you guys for years, but I don't know what's going on in your head. And I'm not your enemy. But the reality is, is that these things should not shake us, but we should be aware of them, and we should hasten the day of our Lord. So God, I pray that you give clarity to these people as we continue to confront this passage in a way that hopefully gives insight that, that there's a wisdom in your word that is so much deeper than our abilities to grasp it. There's a clarity of thinking that is, just blows my mind And we don't pursue knowledge. We don't pursue clarity of thinking. We don't pursue, God knows that, good Bible studies because (laughs) these people are very gracious because we never get that. But what we pursue is the king of kings. We don't come in judgment against people that are sincerely believing something is false. Something that is false, I should say. We don't tear systems of man down. We lift up the kingdom of Christ. And as we lift up the kingdom of Christ, those systems just kind of disappear. When people are worshiping something false, it's because they think it gives them life. Don't destroy the person's conscience by just attacking what they believe in. Lift up the name of Christ. And Lord, you said that you draw men to yourself. You said that you add daily to the church as many as are being saved. And thus your word reveals that salvation is a process. We've relegated it to a one-time event 30 years ago. And so, Lord, I pray for those people here this morning that are in different stages of their understanding of who you are. Some of them have isolated themselves and they begin to panic. Some of them have made very poor decisions in their life, and they're now suffering the consequence of those decisions. You're experiencing the loneliness and the pain the discouragement, the sense of guilt, the sense that God could never forgive me, he can. That is a lie. Because if the blood of Jesus doesn't cover this, nothing else will. So you can either come in faith and say, Lord, would you forgive me and cleanse me? And trust him. Ask him to literally do this, and he literally will. And then the peace will enter your heart. Right now, this morning, you're looking for peace And because you're pursuing peace and not God, you're not getting it. Pursue God, and he will give you peace. And so I pray, God, that all the many-faceted worries and concerns in the room, the fears, the judgment, the condemnation, the, the sense of guilt, there are things that people have done in this room that they know they were wrong, and they haven't been able to admit to anyone, even themselves, that they were wrong. And here this morning, you can come before our Lord and King and tell them, say, I was wrong. That what they did was wrong, but I did wrong as well. Or maybe you instigated it. You created the conflict. You created it, and the guilt is overwhelming, and the, the subtle voice comes in and says, here's how to deal with that guilt. Attack more. But the more you attack, the more empty and dead you feel. It doesn't produce life. And so, God, I pray that these people would come by faith, and bow their knee before the only king. Lord, I sinned. I did evil. Forgive me, cleanse me, and wash me. Help me to get my eyes off my situation or, or myself or that other person. Because you focus on other people, you'll get just angry and bitter. You focus on yourself, you'll get very depressed and discouraged. You focus on all your circumstances and life happening, you'll have anxiety. But if you choose to focus on the Lord, to lift up your eyes, he will give you joy. And the joy of the Lord is my strength. And joy is different than happiness. Happiness changes based upon your circumstances. Joy is a consequence, a fruit of the Spirit. Joy is steady when everything is falling around me. Joy is there when though 10,000 fall by my side, I'll stand because you're my God. And so, Lord, I pray that these people would enter into the joy of the Lord. You are not here to condemn them. You're here to save them, to help them, to heal them. So Lord, give us wisdom. Maybe as I'm talking, some of those things became very real to you. Tell him, as we close in worship, tell him. And just start over. Ask God to forgive you and to cleanse you. Don't dig things up. But if something is like white on rice, it is so real. It's right there. Give that right now to him. And ask him to take it from your hand. You've tried to put it back together a thousand times. And each time you do, you screw it up again. Just give all the pieces to him this time. Don't try to correct it. Just give the broken pieces. And so we pray for this grace, Lord, that you would heal marriages right now in this room. Heal these marriages, Lord. The subtle seduction of our enemy is that you'll find happiness somewhere else, with someone else. If you have a marriage, honor it. Ask God to be in the midst of it. Ask God to heal it and to forgive you. And just live your marriage one day at a time. Don't live the next 20 years, five years, two years, one year. Don't do that. And so, Lord, I pray for healing upon these people. I pray for those that are single, those of us that are single. I pray, God, that we would find a joy in the Lord just one day at a time. Many of us have stories that are quite long, full of pain, but because of you, Lord Jesus, we're not bitter. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd heal these hearts, Lord, forgive their sins. I pray for the young people that are so worried going into this world that is so chaotic. They're they're just starting off. They're so powerless, and yet all hell is about ready to break loose. Would you protect them, forgive them, and cleanse them? And so, God, have your way. You are wise, and we are not, but you give wisdom. So have your way and heal our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.